Let's just open in a word of prayer. Father, as we come to this time when we open your word, I pray that your Holy Spirit would instill in our hearts an expectancy for what we're about to hear. Lord, I pray that we would set aside those things that are happening in the world that distract us from hearing what you have to say to us. And I pray that your word, your word would work strongly within us today to change us and make us more like your Son, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the tents are packed away again. We are back at school. We are back at work. We are back from glamorous and exotic destinations like Waka and we are back in the book of Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 to 16. So please could you turn there now. In our last look at this passage which is yet another of Paul's long sentences I used the illustration of a football coach being asked what difference the game made to national fitness levels. And his observation, of course, was that there was none because the normal situation was that there were a few people on the field who desperately needed a rest, watched by a very large number of people in the stands who desperately needed some exercise. Last time we spoke about the players, this time we will be looking at the watchers. So, let's read our passage then, Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the working of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But, speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effect of working, by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body, for the edifying of itself, in love. May the Holy Spirit bless us in the understanding of these words and empower us to live them out in obedience to the glory of God. The first thing that we can see as we look at the way this text develops is that there is a great deal going on. Well, there's a pattern, there's a gifting with expected responses, changes, aims and results, not to any earthly agenda, but intended to fulfill God's plan and purposes for his church. Now here's the most important thing. You are involved. You are part of this. Only you can know which part you take, but as a member of the body, you definitely and certainly are included right here. Let's unpack Paul's message so that we have a very clear understanding of what our response ought to be after reading it. 
Well, we've already covered verse 11, haven't we? Christ himself has gifted certain types of servant to the church. However, we shouldn't misunderstand that servanthood to mean that those outside of it can expect to do nothing more than be served whilst comfortably seated. It isn't that sort of arrangement at all. As we read in verse 12, the first function of the Lord's servants is the equipping of the saints. So who are these saints? Are they the folk that we sometimes see in religious pictures with those halo thingies around their heads? A kind of super-Christian that none of us could ever aspire to be? No. The term literally means holy one, and it just refers to someone who is set apart or sanctified for a special purpose. And it's used in Scripture to speak about all who have been saved by grace through faith and whom God has set apart from that which is secular, profane and evil to be dedicated to the worship and service of God. So who in this room qualifies for that description? Well, everyone I pray. Saints are believers. All believers are saints. I think I can see some halos glowing from here. (laughs) What this means, of course, is that what we are reading here in Ephesians is universally true for every Christian. Jesus has provided apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers to equip you, you and you, and especially you. So you better pay attention. As we use that word equipping today, it means provision of something or things for a specific purpose. For example, like many Kiwis most summers, we, that is the Tastard family, go away on a camping trip. And this requires a certain amount of equipment. Here is a picture of my long-suffering land cruiser. And when it's loaded, you might notice that it's sitting a bit low at the back. The Tastard family, it can be said are fully equipped. Although I have recently discovered that there are some such as the Newlands who are even more fully equipped than us. They have the executive kitchen which has a chrome-plated finish to it. Jokes aside, the fact remains that although the load in my truck is bringing death to the springs, it turns out that when it's unpacked, all of that stuff is very useful and allows us to camp safely and comfortably. If we didn't have it, say we left the tent or the sleeping bags at home, we wouldn't have a very nice holiday at all. We need to be properly equipped. And as true as that is of a worldly thing, such as going on holiday, it's also very true for the much more important matter of spiritual things. And God isn't ignorant of spiritual things. He knows how and why we need to be equipped. The Greek word Paul has used for equipping does have a slightly different sense though because it actually has the idea of putting something into the condition that it ought to be rather than enabling some special service by adding stuff. And this is very appropriate because the overarching message and intent of the gospel is the restoration of the proper relationship between God and humans. Through his gracious act of salvation, the Lord is repairing creation to the way he intended it to be when he made it. 
So, let's be clear then. Although this is going on, it isn't a license to be a spiritual couch potato because the message isn't that I'm good to go with God now so everything is awesome and I can just take it easy because, you know, there's nothing I have to do. The message is that God has made me good to go. To go, to go and do his work. At this point, you might be wondering just what the equipment we've been talking about might be. So you could know if you had it or not. Well, maybe some really cool sunnies and a shiny Bible to go street evangelizing perhaps. Or maybe three years at seminary would be good. And how about a special gift of confidence or public speaking? That would be really helpful. No. Out of every single thing you might imagine as the right equipment for a Christian to have, only one thing, one thing is the right thing, and that is the Word of God. If at any stage your pastor or teacher or evangelist or whatever is promoting some other plan for equipping you, I have only two words. Run away! To see the scriptural basis for linking the word of God to the equipping process, we can turn to 2 Timothy. Paul's letters to Timothy are pastoral. They are intended to give directions about what the work of a pastor in a church should look like. And in this passage in chapter 3 we read, and it's a very familiar verse, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's fundamental to note that scripture is at the root of all the roles noted in verse 11. If it wasn't so, then we would know that the gifting of these people was not from God, since the Bible is our principal and most reliable source of information on earth about what God is like and how we ought to respond to that. And this is why we prefer the expository method of preaching here at Wanganui East. Well, what is expository preaching? It's what you're hearing right now. That is, we go right through a book or a section of a book in the Bible, verse by verse, leaving out nothing, commenting on everything, no matter how uncomfortable it might be to preach or to hear. And this prevents a bias in preaching on topics that might be pet favourites of the preacher and it ensures that the truth is kept in balance and that we hear everything that God has to say and not just what we might most like to hear. The wonderful thing for me is the way that the Holy Spirit brings scripture alive to us in unexpected ways. I'm often struck by this when I'm talking to people after a sermon because they'll rush up to me and they'll tell me that this or that piece of scripture has spoken to them in a special way. (laughs) And more often than not, it's not in a way that I've mentioned. The Holy Spirit has reached out and touched those people in a special place, exactly where they need to be grown and equipped. Praise God for the special plan that he has for each one of us and the loving way he attends to each single one of us as an individual. 
Right, so, so far we know that we are saints and that we are equipped. So what? Will we be worth more in the used car yard? The balance of verse 12 tells us that we have been brought to this state for two purposes, for the work of ministry and for the edifying of the body of Christ. To read that the saints are to be equipped for the work of ministry tells us that the work of the the church is to be done by the body of the church and not solely by the pastor or elders or deacons or whatever you might call the leadership. And as I look around our congregation, I'm very blessed that, that I can see such a large number of people today who I know are living that work out. But I have to ask, does that include you? Are you using the talents and giftings that God has given to you? There is no escaping that you have them and that you ought to be using them. That is what scripture says right here. I have no authority on my own to ask this. But there it is in black and white in the pages of our Bibles. Now this is one of those uncomfortable moments that I was talking about earlier that expositional preaching brings us to. But then we often need that confrontation to stir us. And although I have directly asked the question, I wouldn't presume to answer it for you because that is between you and God. But you need to be having that conversation with him. Lord, thank you for equipping me for this task. How do you want me to use those gifts? When we talk about the work of ministry, make no mistake that it will require some energy. And the Greek word that's been used is ergon, which describes toil as an effort or occupation. And we still use that word today. In English, an erg is a unit of work or energy, which, for your fund of absolute, this is really useless information, but I thought I'd include it anyway. It's equal to the work done by a force of one dine, when its point of application moves one centimetre in the direction of the action of the force. I bet you're all blessed now. (laughs) Make no mistake, though, we will need to use some of those ergs in the service of our Lord. We will need to be moving in the direction of that force. Ministry is work, and we will often need the sweat of our brow to be effective. And that is the outward effect of the work. But there is also an inward part too. As we read this text today, we see that the work intended is ministry. Now, the meaning of words has changed over the years. Now, ministry today is a kind of glossy word that's often associated with doing good deeds and that little sense of self-righteousness that we often have after the deeds have been done. What will you be doing today, Dave? Oh, I'm off to do a bit of ministering to the poor. What a noble thing to do. Yes, well, one does what one can. The trouble is that the ministry Paul speaks of here isn't like that at all. He uses the word diaconia, from which we get our modern word deacons. It literally means attendance, just like a servant attends at a table. 
And for both Greek and Jewish readers of this text, the use of this word was a big problem for them because both had a life philosophy which saw servanthood as demeaning and degrading. And this was especially true of the Greeks who thought that the highest goal before a man was the development of his own personality. For the Jews, if any service was done at all, it was done as an act of social obligation or a concession to those who were more worthy. They were expecting some kind of favour back. So you can imagine what a stark contrast there was between that mindset and what Paul is recommending here. And he doesn't do it from a poor example at all because we read in Matthew 20, 28 this about Jesus himself. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And that's that same word, diaconia. That wasn't what anyone expected of the Messiah. He was expected to come as a warrior, a conquering king, charging in on a mighty horse, not as a lowly servant. And yet that is what he did. And look at what he accomplished by service. Now it's all very well hearing about the Greeks and the Jews, but when it comes down to it, if we're honest, I don't think that we're so very different today. We are still inclined to see menial service of this kind as below us. And this is where we will have to use some of those ergs internally. We have Christ's example, as we have just heard, and we have Paul's encouragement right here. Yet we also have a lifetime's worth of baggage holding us back. Yes, it will take some effort to bring us to the right attitude of heart, but while we might see it from this end as a sacrifice, I'm sure that when we are rejoicing in heaven at the other end, it will be a blessing. However, there can be too much of an apparently good thing. We should bear in mind the example of Martha in the book of Luke, whose serving reminds us that we are not to work for work's sake. You know, Martha worked so hard that she was distracted and the word literally means being drawn in different directions at the same time. She was distracted with all her preparations and she missed the good part of sitting at the Lord's feet. So we should be careful not to serve just for service's sake. The last part of verse 12 speaks of the edifying of the body of Christ. What is this word edifying? I mean, it's not something you hear used in everyday conversation, is it? I mean, you never hear, G'day, mate. How are you? Edified as, mate. Edified as. Never heard anybody say that. And although it sounds a bit flash, edification just means building up. Although at the time Paul wrote this, it was the usual word for any building of a house. I'm going to edify a house. It means I'm going to build a house. Today it carries a very strong association specifically with religious matters. Actually the use of this word in this part of the text is very clever because not long ago we were reading at the end of chapter 2 how the apostles and prophets were a foundation And Jesus was the cornerstone of a building that was made of living bricks, which is the believers, the saints. 
So here is Paul reminding us of that picture again just a few chapters later. Now I've just read a novel in which the hero is infected with some kind of infernal doomsday bug as a result of an accident. And the bug's life cycle is such that it replicates, that it is, it splits into two new bugs every 45 minutes. Now that doesn't sound like such a big deal, does it? But because of the way that doubling process works, it so rapidly builds up numbers that by the end of 24 hours, that single bug will have no less than 2 billion Two billion brothers and sisters. And when I read this, I didn't believe it. So I actually sat down with my calculator and I worked it out. And it's right. It really is true. Friends, that is the potential of the power Paul is speaking about here. Can you imagine what the church will be like if the pastor equipped and edified a believer... And then that believer equipped and edified another. And then they equipped and edified their friends. It would be like a pebble dropped in a pond with the ripples of the gospel and the other fruits of God's word reaching out to its furthest corners. That's an exciting vision. And its realisation doesn't lie in someone else's hands. It lies in ours. What is the purpose of all this equipping and working and edifying? Verse 13 gives us the measure of completion. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of of Christ. I just want to read you a short selection from a well-known book. I wonder if you can tell me what it is. All children, except one, grow up. They soon know that they will grow up, and the way Wendy knew was this. One day when she was two years old, she was playing in a garden, and she plucked another flower and ran with it to her mother. I suppose she must have looked rather delightful, For Mrs. Darling put her hand to her heart and cried, Oh, why can't you remain like this forever? This was all that passed between them on the subject. But henceforth, Wendy knew that she must grow up. You always know after you are two. Two is the beginning of the end. (laughs) Anybody like to tell me where it's from? Peter Pan. Of course, it's from J.M. Barry's book, Peter Pan. And on the face of it, the idea of never having to grow up is rather appealing. But what about the reality? How would you like to go back to school? How about losing or in fact never really knowing real independence? Always having to rely on others to tell you when, where, how and if you can go. Never knowing the joys of marriage and parenthood. Not being able to know the truth because you have neither the experience or the education so that you are continuously vulnerable to the deceit of others. (laughs) 
I'm not so sure that it's such an attractive proposition after all. Yet spiritual childhood is the dwelling place of many Christians. And that childhood has many of the disadvantages of of the physical state. As we read in verse 14, spiritual children suffer being tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. I believe we've all experienced this confusion at one time or another. The trouble is that there are so many people who can couple their intellect and their grasp of language to make such believable doctrine. One says this, another says that, so we go a little way like this, and then a little way like that, and there we are being tossed to and fro, or worse, being preyed upon by those who have a deliberately deceitful agenda. All you have to do is Google something like the perfect Christian life and there are 126 million results. One thing is for certain, you're never going to be able to try them all. And you can bet that a whole bunch of those are doctrinally wrong and that another bunch are designed specifically to part you from your money. So how can we know what is right? Do we really want to carry on living like spiritual children? I'd like to believe not. So what is the alternative? The alternative, of course, is maturity, isn't it? We haven't dealt with verse 13 yet. I jumped forward a little to kind of keep the flow of the explanation, but the need for and the measures of that maturity lie there. And in the verses following. So, let's explore them now. Verse 13 starts with the word till or until. And the Greek word used for this tells us that the matters spoken are the end goals. And this is really good to know because it means that we can look at them alone as we climb and we don't need to be distracted by false crests or perhaps forks in the road. The journey may not be easy, but it isn't complicated and it does have a very definite end. It is also a collective journey. When Paul says we all, he means all. Every saint without exception. So this isn't a goal that's somehow limited to a few super Christians who have the intellect or self-control or some other special ability that the rest of us lack. It is something that we can all understand and we can all attain. That's so encouraging to me because I'm very painfully aware of my many failings. If it were not for God's grace, I can't see how I wouldn't fall aside in the race. But he holds me up as he holds all believers up in their journeys. And I have the assurance that he will perfect me. And I have the assurance that I can get to the goal that he has set for me. The first measure of maturity mentioned is the unity of the faith. As we speak here of faith, we're not talking about faith as an act of belief 
or obedience, as in saving faith, but about the sum of Christian faith, what we believe to be true about God, his nature, and how humans relate to him. And that's the kind of faith that we're speaking about here. In understanding that, we can see that Paul isn't looking for a time when everyone is a Christian, but rather to that moment when all Christians will share the same great truths that are revealed in the Scriptures. Now, that's a bit hard to believe at the moment when we consider the very wide range of beliefs within the church today and the division that often results. So how should we respond? It's very clear that the church on earth will never achieve a unity of faith. But when Christ returns and all men are confronted with that reality of God face to face, then we will undoubtedly enjoy a deep and wonderful unity of knowledge and worship. In the meanwhile, though, there is no reason not to do our best to work towards healing those divisions. And the answer for that healing doesn't lie in compromise, but on the focal point of Scripture. When we muddy the message that is given to us by God by interpreting it through lenses such as humanism and other modern kinds of thinking, then we're just fueling that divisive fire. So those who teach must continually sorry, must continue to faithfully rely on the timeless truths of Scripture and Scripture alone. And those who hear must continue to test what they have heard. But hearing and testing alone is not enough because what is heard and tested must be lived out in works of service. It cannot be kept hidden inside. So, while we might not achieve that unity today, that never ever means that we should not act in obedience by working towards the goal. God is faithful. God is mighty. He can absolutely be relied upon to bring that unity about in the moment of his choosing. There's great joy and hope in that knowledge. Speaking of knowledge, the next measure of maturity is the knowledge of the Son of God. Paul isn't talking about the knowledge of Christ by which we are saved, but an intimate and deep knowledge of our Saviour that comes from experience. It's so much more than just knowing about him. It's about knowing him directly and personally. You're in a situation, you don't know what to do. So, it's acronym time. WWJD. Who knows what that means? What would Jesus do? The knowledge of the Son of God is knowing what Jesus would do. When you have become attuned to his heart in such a way that you are never unsure of the godly course of action. And I think it's self-evident that this knowledge will not come about just by warming a pew, but by diligent study and prayer. The third measure of maturity is becoming a perfect, or some uh, translations will say a mature man. Ladies, please be reassured that this isn't a gender 
specific or exclusive qualification. And most of you will probably tell me that there isn't such a thing as a perfect man anyway. The man referred to here is just man in the, sake, in the sense of humanity generally. Now, maturity is a very revealing objective because it tells us that God's goal for Christians is not to be the best dressed or the most cleverest or the most cultured people on earth. What he does want is a church that is filled with ordinary people who show their extraordinary integrity, temperament, wholeness, compassion, individuality, boldness, righteousness, earnestness, love, forgiveness, selfish selflessness, and faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That is Christian maturity. And within the model given to us here, and with the aid of the Holy Spirit, progress towards it is accessible to us all. Earlier I spoke about the way the word until shows that there is a definite end goal. Here it is. This maturity. The Greek word used is one that means complete, mature, fully developed, fully grown, or brought to its end. Full maturity isn't a rung on a ladder. It is the landing on top. There is nowhere else to go. Let's be very clear here. This goal of maturity is extraordinarily important. We talk a lot about preaching the gospel and fulfilling the Great Commission. Yes, God does want us to help bring new believers into the kingdom. But his interest goes well beyond just a body count. His ultimate goal is a redeemed people. This is true. But a redeemed people whose character is aligned with that of Christ. And we call the process of this alignment sanctification. If God sees us as important, if this is his goal, then we should have the task of participating in that sanctification right there at the top of our things to do list. Indeed, we should be very serious about getting involved in it, putting those ergs in, doing our utmost to live more and more like Jesus every day because it is the desire of our Heavenly Father who has done so much for us. To show us the quality of the ultimate goal, Paul tells us in verse 13, that it is the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The perfect man is Christ, and the perfected Christian will be like him too, in mind, heart, and deed. We can know that we will have reached the full expression of maturity, the state that God desires when we are completely like Christ. And we are already on that journey. But are we crawling along the path? Or running, pressing forward and straining to win the prize, as Paul writes elsewhere? And whilst it's right for me to make this challenge, it would be very wrong for me to say that perfection is expected right now or else. Spiritual growth requires three things. 
knowledge, obedience, and time. All of us lack one or more of these things to some degree. So, the reality is that no one is going to achieve perfect Christ-likeness in our natural lives. However, that's no excuse to give up or become discouraged. So we should be questioning the attitude of hearts. Are we eager to grow? If we lack, how can we work to change that? What could we do differently? And this internal dialogue needs to be fed by the study of God's word and supported by constant prayer. We must pray because merely reading about someone's character is no substitute for talking to them, is it? That's how we get to know our earthly friends and that's how we should get to know our friend Jesus. The work of attaining perfection means that we must be realistic but patient and constant. Remember that it takes God years to grow an oak tree but he can grow a squash in three months and a radish plant in a few weeks. What would you rather be? I'd hope to get to the end of the section today, but it's obvious that that would take far too long. So, let's sum up what we've learned so far. And to do so, I'm going to use a quote from Ray Steadman's book, Body Life, because he just says it a whole bunch better than I can. That's what he reads. The work of the ministry belongs to the entire body of believers who should be equipped, guided and encouraged by those who are gifted by God to expound and apply his word with wisdom and power. The entire body has received gifts from the Spirit and it is the task of those in the pastoral ministry to encourage the entire body to discover and exercise those gifts. When we rediscover the pattern and strategy of Ephesians 4, when we have given all Christians in the body their God-given role as ministers of God's eternal plan, then the entire body comes alive with resurrection power. Lives are changed. Ministries explode. Communities are touched and healed. The church becomes healthy and vital and exciting again. If we can recapture God's original strategy for the church, then we will again see churches that are modern extensions of the church of Acts. The trademarks of the true living church of Jesus Christ are boldness, power, transformation and love lived out in act after act of Christian service. There is no place in this world more exciting to be than a church that operates as God designed it to. That's a wonderful prospect, isn't it? But that's all it will stay, a prospect, if we don't act with urgency. So, will you be a part of that? Will you use the equipment that you have been given? Will you do the work of ministry? Will you commit to study and prayer? Will you do your utmost to seek the maturity that God desires for you? Or will you choose to remain as a child? Let us pray. Father, 
I thank you for the challenge contained in your word. Thank you for showing us what is possible. And Lord, I pray that you would clearly act in our hearts to show us what our part is in this. And that we would be excited and stirred by that potential and that possibility. Lord, we confess that we are weak and that we are sometimes lazy and we are afraid. Forgive us for that. Help us to overcome those things, to become the mature Christians and examples of your Son here on earth for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our concluding song is How Great Thou Art. Would you like to stand for that? Thank you.